Trinity hymn book, and it's hymn number one, but we're just going to sing the first two verses, all people that on earth do dwell, coming from Psalm 100, the first three verses. So let us stand together and call one another to worship with the singing of this psalm. Taking your Trinity hymn books as well, turn to 199. 199, it speaks of that day of resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome, happy morning. Age to age shall say, hell today is vanquished. Heaven is one today. 199, Trinity hymn book.
Would you please bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you, Father, for the fact that we have a risen Savior, one who has come and taken on manhood and who has conquered death. We thank you, Father, that we can gather together today with the hope of the resurrection, that we will not have to face the consequences of our sin, for your Son has come and done that for us. Thank you, Father, that we can gather together and sing praises to your name. Pray that you would be with us as we seek to serve you this morning. Give us the strength that we need. Pray, Father, that you would help us to be those who listen intently to your word, and may we benefit from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now again, taking the Trinity hymn book, turning to 269, 269 in the Trinity, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God, 269.
Uh, If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 11. I'll limit comments as uh, it's a rather long chapter and want to save Micah some time this morning. Um, If uh, your version of the Bible puts a little caption in the beginning of the chapter, uh, it plainly spells out what we're going to see in this chapter. It's the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Um, Two things I would like to quickly point out, the whole purpose of this. We find in verse 4, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It is plain in this chapter who Christ is. He is the Son of God, for only God could raise someone from the dead uh, to eliminate all doubt whether Lazarus is dead. We see that he's been in the grave for four days. And people know that even uh, the removing of the stone will bring out the stench of death. But the truly amazing thing to me in this chapter is the attitude of the Pharisees and the hardness of their heart. Um, When we get to verse 47, notice that they never dispute that Lazarus was dead and raised from the dead. They're concerned about their position and their authority. It says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees conveyed a counsel and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were more concerned with their own position here on earth than they were with their eternal souls. Chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the man of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just seeking to stone you, and you are going up there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awake him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not come, had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had been dead came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came 
to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees conveyed a counsel and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness in the city of Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem, out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think that what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it, so that they might seize him. As we seek our God together once again this morning, we especially want to give thanks to God for answers to prayer with regard to Pastor Smith's recent trip to Pakistan and the ministry that he had there with the Grace Baptist Church in Islamabad. But also we want to pray for the Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference that will begin today at the Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. So we want to pray for the men that will gather for that conference as well. So let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for those events in history that teach us so many wonderful lessons. We are reminded in the narrative that we read this morning, that because of our sin, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that death and sickness and sorrow has come into the world. Father, your word tells us that the wages of sin is death. But Father, how thankful we are The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to conquer that last great enemy called death. And that through him we can have life and have it more abundantly. We thank you that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, many of us here this morning know the reality of having our sins forgiven and being reconciled to you. And and how our hearts are 
filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for such a wonderful gift of eternal life that has been given to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, how we give You thanks that we have a great hope of the resurrection that is yet to come. That death has lost its sting and the grave will not have its victory. And Father, we bless, you. <clears throat> we bless You for even the reality as we saw Mary and Martha's misery turn to joy. So we also know that for every believer, joy, true joy comes in the morning when we shall see our Savior face to face. And therefore, may we not be ashamed of the Gospel, but may we proclaim that Gospel, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And Father, we're thankful that He conquered death and that He ever lives now to make intercession for us. Father, we pray this morning and give you thanks for answers to our prayers as we prayed for our brother Pastor Smith's recent trip to Pakistan. Thank you for using him there and giving him the strength that he needs as he taught there in the pastor's conference, as he ministered there on the Lord's Day, as he had opportunity to counsel and help others. And Father, we pray that his ministry among them will prove to be of great benefit to the Grace Baptist Church, to Pastor Danielle there in Islamabad. And may there be good fruit that comes from our brother's visit there, not only there at Grace Baptist, but in other churches there in that country that is so opposed to the things of God. Father, we would pray as well that you will draw near to the men that gather this week there in Montville for the pastor's conference. We pray that you will draw near to them, be with Pastor Chansky, Pastor Smith, and Pastor Kane as they minister the Word of God. We pray that the men would be refreshed as they have the opportunity to set and be, and be taught. Give them hearts that are prepared to receive the Word of God as it goes forth. And Father, as we think of death and sorrow and grief, we would lift up all the events that are taking place there in the Middle East even now. And Father, how we pray that wickedness and evil would be put down. We see how little men think of human life. And Father, how we pray that those who seek to do that which is evil and wrong, that justice would be done. That Father, you'll give wisdom to leaders who make decisions that have consequences worldwide. Father, at this time, we hear of many speaking about peace and wanting peace, but there is no peace. And Father, we know that real peace is only found in knowing Jesus Christ, who gives a peace that passes all understanding. And so, Father, we pray that during these days of chaos and upheaval, that, Father, we'll have opportunities to share the Gospel. 
And that men, you'll prepare men's heart to receive that gospel. And that even though it grieves us to see all that's going on, Father, may we rejoice if you're pleased to add to your kingdom and extend your kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that. Save men, we pray. We ask that you would be with Micah as he comes to open the word of God. We pray that each one of us might be ready to hear from you and that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and make it effective in our hearts and lives to the glory of our God. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before Micah comes to open the Word of God, again, take the hymns of grace. The hymns of grace, number 17. O Father, You are sovereign. Number 17 in the hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing.
good to worship the Lord together this morning. Return with me in your copy of God's Word to the first epistle of Peter. The first epistle of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is going to mark the beginning in a series of messages all the way through the contents of this glorious letter. And just as I read the text for us this morning, we're going to read this morning through verse 9 of chapter 1. Uh, This message is only going to be on the first two verses, but I just want you to get a feel for the contents of this letter and for Peter's uh, flow of thought here. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and through verse 8. These are the words of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory, praise and and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not now see him, you though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the reality that we are your chosen people. Thank you for the reality that we are indeed chosen according to your foreknowledge, sanctified, set apart by your spirit and sprinkled with the precious blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that because we're sprinkled with his precious blood, forgiven from all of our sins, and we stand before you as righteous this morning by faith and faith alone in Jesus, in his finished work, that you accept our offering of worship today. And it pleases you because you're our Father who is in heaven. You've adopted us into your family. Thank you that we don't worship you in order to be right with you, but we worship you because we're right with you in your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. It's fitting that John chapter 11 was the text in our consecutive reading through the New Testament this morning. And it's fitting uh, because the people that saw Jesus raise Lazarus got a small foretaste of the glory of the age to come. Jesus stood outside Lazarus's tomb and by the mere power of the word of the Son of God, the dead came to life and he walked out of the tomb. But he walked out of the tomb 
to one day return there. Lazarus walked out of his tomb, out of the corruption. Remember, Mary and Martha are concerned because he stinks by now. So his flesh had started to undergo corruption. He walked out of that corruption, healed from that, only to return there one day. They got a small foretaste of the indestructible glory of the resurrection of the dead that's in Christ that will never end. They got a taste of the age to come even as they live in this present fallen and evil age. And I think that that's fitting as we begin to journey into the, the first epistle of Peter because Peter, First uh, Peter is often a letter that sets these sort of dual realities before us. This age of sin and death and suffering and persecution in which the church is exiled in the world and the age to come of immeasurable glory in Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, when Christ will be revealed from heaven and make all things new. These are two realities that Peter is constantly set, setting before us. First Peter is a letter of parallel realities. And just in the context of this letter, in the context of his audience, who is beginning to experience persecution for the sake of the gospel, Peter is a letter, or First Peter is a letter of both intense plight and unconquerable hope. It's a letter to these people that he calls elect exiles, a people with no lasting possessions in this life, but yet those who somehow possess everything. It's a letter to those with no homeland because they're exiled, but those who belong to a better city whose founder and builder is God. It's a letter to those who in many cases, in their very near future, were doomed to suffering and death so that they might win the crown of life in Christ. This letter is written to a suffering church. In this church, if you know anything about the context that it was written in, they were a church that was just beginning to feel the pressure of what it's like to exist as believers in a negative world. During the course of their lives, this church had gone from a religious minority that was so insignificant that no one cared about it to the multiplying, gospel-preaching, authority-threatening body of Christ, which, in the eyes of this world, must be dominated and snuffed out at all costs. Peter himself is writing this letter from Rome, and in the course of a few years, he would be crucified upside down for the sake of the gospel. Over the course of the next few years, even as they were just beginning to feel this pressure from the outside world, over the course of the next few years, the emperor Caesar Nero would begin using Christians as torches for his garden parties. He would begin impaling Christians and throwing parties under the light of their burning bodies. They hadn't begun to experience that intense of persecution yet, but it was coming. And Peter writes this letter in order to show them the glory of the inheritance in the world to come that they have. And to explain to them 
what the reason is right now for their relationship to the world. Peter writes to them to explain both the reason for their plight and the reason for their unbreakable hope, which once again are parallel realities in the Christian life. The church's plight and the church's hope are grounded in verses 1 and 2 in our text today. The church's plight and the church's hope are grounded in two relationships from these first, from these first verses of Peter's letter. Look at the two relationships of every Christian in verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. What are the two relationships there in verse 1? Elect is one relationship. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then the other relationship is exile. Elect according to God and exiles in the world. Chosen and at home in God and outcasts in this age. Peter paints... Uh, Peter paints a picture with the wording elect exiles. And if you have the NASB, this isn't as clear, but actually in the original text, these words are side by side. Peter puts these two words side by side, elect exiles or elect sojourners in the original to highlight the stark relational contrast of these two realities. Being elect and immeasurably loved by God means being hated and an outcast in this age. That is Peter's point. That is the theological paradigm that he introduces this letter through. This theological reality that every single Christian and specifically his audience falls into, if you are loved by God, you are not loved by the world. You have no home here. We're going to first look at the, the church's plight through the relational term exiles. The church's plight. Peter, in this letter, militates against an over-realized eschatology. Now, what do I mean by an over-realized eschatology? That's kind of a big term. I mean it's any belief or expectation of the future on this side of the second coming of Christ that says you are going to dominate the world now, in this age. It's any belief or expectation that you are going to come into the fullness of your inheritance as a believer in Christ in this age and not in the age to come. It's any expectation that the world will accept our message right now. It's any expectation that the world will embrace you as a follower of Christ right now. Peter says, absolutely not. Right now, you are not at home, but you're, you're aliens in a foreign land. And you know what? This kind of thinking would be fundamentally disastrous and deadly for these Christians. If these Christians were expecting to transform their culture, 
If these Christians were expecting for the world to love them and to accept their message and for essentially for Christ to, or for uh, their message and their influence to dominate the world before the second coming of Christ, if that's what they were expecting, then when, when Caesar started burning them alive, they would be in a whole lot of trouble. They would quickly become disillusioned and discouraged. these believers would have no way of understanding their persecution if that was their eschatological expectation. Peter paints a picture of the church as a a group of people that is not home yet. Peter paints a, a picture of the church as a community that is sojourning to the promised land, but that with the, their promised land will only be delivered when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. The church is less like David conquering the Philistines and more like Daniel and his friends living faithfully to their Lord in Babylon. That's the picture that exile invokes. And this is actually a particularly poignant picture Because this is a lesson that Peter himself had to learn. Peter himself didn't always have this expectation that the church would be, the people of the Messiah would be this suffering group of believers who have immeasurable glory delivered to them only in the coming of the age to come. Peter himself had to work through this false understanding through the lens of the crucifixion of the Messiah himself. Let me, let me show you that. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 with me. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this is the famous passage where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gives Peter one of the most ringing endorsements that any any human being has ever had. Let's read together. Now when Jesus came into the district, in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. For I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll give you the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was Christ. So this sounds like victory, doesn't it? The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. This sounds like we're going to get everything we've ever wanted in victory in this world. But then what does Jesus immediately start telling his disciples after that? Move on to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned aside and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, join the death march. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what do we have in this text? We have Peter confessing Jesus is the Christ. We have this message of victory. On this rock I will build my church. But then you have a prophecy of immense suffering of the Messiah and resurrection glory following it. And that establishes a paradigm not only for the Messiah and how he will achieve victory for his people, but it establishes a paradigm for how his people will be victorious as well. Because what does he go on to say immediately after he foretells his own death and resurrection? He tells them, you must take my cross too. That's the expectation for life in this age that the Messiah is trying to stamp on the memories of his disciples. You will be exiles in this world. You must join the death march if you want to join me in the resurrection. But it's not just Matthew 16 that we see this paradigm at work turn with me to Mark 9 Mark chapter 9 because the disciples are consistently getting this wrong this overrealized eschatology where the disciples are expecting the glory of the kingdom to come in now and crush the Romans is one of the things that the Lord Jesus has to consistently rebuke in them and show them no suffering is necessary first first the Messiah's suffering and then the people, the people suffering who, is, who are united to him. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse, verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> and they came to Capernaum. <clears throat> and they came to Capernaum, and when he was at the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way that he, uh, they had argued with one another who was about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever, uh, and whoever receives me receives not uh receives not me, but him who sent me. So this comes on the heels of, once again, of Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. But when they're talking on the way, they're talking about who will be greatest when the glory of the kingdom was ushered in. So you see this, uh, this misunderstanding at play in their minds even still. The idea is that the Messiah is going to bring in his glory now, and which one of us is going to be the greatest here? Jesus says, no. The Messiah is becoming the suffering servant of all 
And if you would join him in his glory, you must be the servant of all too, even to the likes of a little child. So you see this over-realized eschatology, this false expectation of our relationship to the world that Jesus is constantly rebuking in the disciples in his earthly ministry. You know what the disciples wanted? The disciples wanted glory without the cross, gain without pain, riches without poverty, and kingdom inheritance without exile. That's what they wanted. They wanted to come into their inheritance and be united with Christ that way without being united to him in his death. Without being willing to suffer with him. That's what faith in Christ demands. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is evidence of true faith. True faith produces people who are willing to suffer with Christ in this age so that they might have their inheritance in him when he comes again. But by the time that Peter writes this letter, in this first epistle of Peter, he finally gets it. On the other side of the cross and resurrection, on the other side of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, when his mind is open and the Spirit Spirit of God is breathed onto the people of God, Peter understands that the fullness of their inheritance won't come in until the age to come. So let's turn back to 1 Peter. Turn back to 1 Peter and we're going to look at a few verses in this letter that show us Peter's new eschatology. Peter's new expectation for the immediate future and for the future following the return of Christ. 1 Peter, first in uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This was part of what we read this morning. In this you rejoice... What do they rejoice in? Salvation revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the unveiling of his glory from heaven when he makes himself known to all mankind. So it's testing now that their faith might be proven now, and then that results in praise and glory and honor in the future, in the age to come. But it's not just there. Look at verse one, uh, or chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter keeps using this terminology to cultivate our expectation for the future. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at Christ's revelation. Christians are not a people whose hopes are fulfilled in this life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. I'll give you a second to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. And I think that these are some of the most clear verses that establish this paradigm of suffering and glory for us. Chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> for it is better... 
Or actually, let's start in 16. Having a, good, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered and those who revile you, or when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good. That's our relationship with the present age, suffering for doing good. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. And then later on in verse 22, he shows us the outcome of Christ's suffering as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So we suffer and are brought into glory in the same pattern as our Savior. Christ's suffering and then glory is the pattern for his people's suffering and glory. 1 Peter 4.13 says the same thing. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in your sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then actually in verse, in chapter 5 as well. Peter calls himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ in his body as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So all in all, what is the expectation that Peter is trying to cultivate for the church in this age? It's a rather bleak one. Peter's trying to cultivate an expectation of the church in this age that we will be opposed We will not be loved by the world. As the world hated Christ and nailed him to a cross, you'll have to join the death march in this world too. Peter had finally learned by the time that he wrote this that the church is not the people of this age. They're not the people of this creation. They're the people of the new creation, the kingdom to come. And while we're waiting for the age to come, the church lives in this age as exiles in a foreign land, aliens amongst our own countrymen. But here's the thing. Peter is not saying this. And I am not saying this so that his audience or you might be downtrodden and bleak and hopeless people. Because if we just closed the message there, that would be a pretty bleak and hopeless outlook. But I'm saying this so that we might crucify all vain and worldly hope and set our hope fully where it belongs. You know what I was thinking about the other day? I was thinking about the church as this exile people. And in any other sense, this would be a total tragedy. If you... If you talk to any other type of people who have no home, no possessions, the world is against them, the world hates them, the world wants to ravage them and see them pounded to dust, you would say, look, this is a tragedy of epic proportions. But that is not Peter's message in this. Peter's message is not that this is a tragedy. Peter's message is actually the opposite. Those who have a home in this world, that is the tragedy. Those who are at home and have their possessions and have their glory in this life, that is the ultimate tragedy because it will all be burned up. 
It will all go away when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. The only people with a lasting hope and a lasting inheritance are people who die in this age now so that they might live with Christ. Those are the only people for whom this life is not a total tragedy. This is a letter not of tragedy, but of unbreakable and unconquerable hope because we have a risen Savior, because we have a Savior who raises the dead. We have a Savior who's gone into death on our behalf and borne our penalty on the cross in His own body and was raised to life and His resurrection is our justification. And if we're joined to Him in His death, we'll be joined to Him in His life as well. But look at the other, let's look at the other relationship here. Because this one far outweighs the other one. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is the foundation of the unbreakable hope of the people of God. And what's amazing here is that even though Peter sandwiches these terms, elect and exiles, together, they're not equal realities in any sense of the word. And why is that? Because your exile will end one day. One day you will come into your inheritance. But you know what will never end? Your election. The fact that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. This is an eternal reality in comparison with our temporary exile. That is the hope that Peter is trying to infuse into his people into these, in these verses. Peter points over and over in this letter to the end of our exile. It ends when Jesus Christ, once again, descends from heaven in power and glory, bringing our new land with him. But that glory and that belonging will never end because the triune God has made you his own and he has possessed you even though this world dispossesses you. This is what election is. It's not just a past action of God, but it's an enduring present reality. The actions of the different persons of the Trinity actually show us this. Take, take a look and, and let's pay close attention here in, uh, in verse 2 to the prepositional phrases. Because they sort of, uh, they give us a feel for the, the motion of this text. The prepositional phrases, what do I mean by that? Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then in or by the sanctification of the Spirit. And then for obedience to Jesus Christ. These prepositions tell us something. So let's look at the first one. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to shows us that this is the source that every blessing of salvation flows from. So your exile actually started the moment that you became a believer. But you know what never began? God's foreordaining you to eternal life in His Son. The world started hating you at some point. God never started loving you in Christ. 
That is how this eternal reality overshadows our temporary plight. And there's a lot of debate here about what foreknowledge means. Some say that this is God's simple prescience or pre-knowledge. They say that essentially this means that God just knows that you'll choose him, so then he in turn chooses you. But that's never been convincing to me. And here's why. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. What does this text say about Christ? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So it wouldn't make any more sense to say that God simply looks down the corridor of time and chooses us because he sees us choosing him than it would make sense to say that the Father chose the Son to be the mediator between God and men because he saw the action of the Son in time or because he looked down the corridor of time and saw the Son's choosing of him. This is the same term. It would make... It it makes equally little sense to interpret it that way in both of these cases. So what does our foreign what does the chosen accord or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father actually mean? What happens in time, your elect relationship to God, is a product of God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge is not a product of what happens in time. God's knowledge is actually the cause of his choosing you and your choosing him. He doesn't get his knowledge from what happens in time. Individuals, and also individuals are the objects of of this foreknowledge and not actions. He doesn't look down the corridor, or he doesn't foreknow that you'll choose him. He foreknows individuals. He foreknows Christ. He foreknows his people. This indicates a loving kind of relationship and a purpose of love that goes beyond even what the word knowledge can communicate. And I think Jesus gives us, a, gives us a picture of what this means in John chapter 17. I'm stammering to communicate it here, but Jesus gives us a, a clear glimpse of it. John chapter 17. And this prayer of Jesus, this high priestly prayer, is all about what the Father and the Son had agreed to do for their chosen people in eternity past. But uh, look at how Jesus phrases this. John chapter 17, starting in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that You sent me and loved, past tense, and loved them even as you loved me. This gives us a glimpse of what the foreknowledge of God the Father is. It is his setting his love both on his son as the mediator between God and men and on his elect people in his son. 
So when you see foreknowledge, don't think simply just seeing something beforehand. When you see foreknowledge, think Adam knew his wife, Eve. It's a purpose of love. It's not a reaction. Paul also mirrors this in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us, so He didn't merely see us, He didn't merely reflexively know us, but He chose by His purpose us in Him, in Christ. So Christ is foreknown, we are foreknown in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So you see the source of our belonging to God. Our belonging to God Yes, it was applied to us at a certain moment in our lives where we went from darkness to light by the power of God's sanctifying spirit. But your belonging to God in his purpose of election never began. It lasted as long as as his love for his son lasted. It was always his purpose to give a people to his son in love so that his son might die and rise for them and be magnified in them. God, is, God himself is the fountain of our salvation from eternity to eternity. That is something, that is a glory that far outweighs any suffering we have now in this life. We belong to the triune God. There's nothing that beats that. Look at the, look at the second preposition here. In, or by, the sanctification of the Spirit. You could say some of your translations might have in, some of them might have by, but either way, it expresses the same reality. It expresses the means by which God makes us his own in time. God didn't just choose you and then wind up the clock and let it run you know, however it was predetermined to run. That's not what God's providence and his purpose look like in history. What God planned in eternity past is brought to us and applied personally by the Holy Spirit. And this is also, when he says the sanctification of the Spirit, he's not talking about progressive sanctification here. There is a sense in which our sanctification is progressive. Each and every day, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the Spirit. But that's not what Peter is talking about here because that happens after you already belong to him. Peter is talking about the means by which he makes you his own. He's talking about the decisive action of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, in conversion itself. There is a positional aspect of sanctification that is indicated here. 
And I think that this is illustrated well by the Spirit running on to Old Testament kings, or the Spirit anointing Old Testament priests. Really, what the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament was it was anointing and carving out and setting apart this particular person for this particular service. That's what was happening. As the, as the priests were anointed with the Holy Spirit and as they had the, the blood of the sacrifices sprinkled on them, what was that signifying? That was signifying that this person is now holy and set, af- set apart and devoted to the purposes of God. Well, when Peter says that you're elect by the sanctification or in the sanctification of the Spirit, he's impressing on you the same reality. You are now holy and set apart to belong to God. You're set apart for his purposes. And in this way, the New Covenant believer has something far better than Old Testament saints ever had. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 Uh, talks about this reality of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. It speaks of it as a spiritual resurrection and an application of every gospel blessing that was won for you by Jesus Christ. So in in the moment that you were converted, what God had determined to do in eternity past was affected by the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit applied the blessings of the gospel to you. You were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were given a new heart that loved God's law and wanted to obey Christ. You you had begun being conformed into the image of Christ. But you'd also been carved out of the world. You've been carved out of the world and set apart for the purposes of God. So of course the world is going to have a different relationship to you now. Because you live in a different domain. You're not common anymore. You're holy. That's the work of the Spirit of God applying the blessings of the gospel to his people at the moment that they trust Christ. Then the last preposition here. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and then for what purpose? Or to what end? What is the ultimate purpose that God has done this for? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is God's end. This is the reason that he foreknew you and set you apart through the work of his spirit. It's so that you might be body and soul the possession of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 says that the mystery of his will, the mystery of God's will that was enacted in time is for the purpose of uniting all things in Christ. So we see what God's glorious purpose is in all of this. His glorious purpose for all of this is for the glory and honor of his son whom he loved before time began. The reason that you're in exile in this world is because God intends to glorify his son as you live in obedience to him. And I think that there's a special kind of glory in that. Even as Psalm, Psalm chapter, what does Psalm chapter 2 say? Or Psalm number 2. The nations, 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ, saying, let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are gathered against God in this age, raging against him and his Messiah. But they can't reach God, so what do they do? They come after his people. But even as the nations rage against God, his Christ, and his people, the answer from God's people is that he is worth every single drop of our obedience. It's that Jesus Christ is worthy of it all. Jesus Christ is worthy of my suffering for his sake. In fact, suffering for his sake is a gift because one day it will be so far outweighed by the glory that I will receive in Christ that it will make my suffering seem light. It will make our suffering seem like it's nothing. So this theological reality that God's people live in, this eschatological reality that God's people live in, where we're elect exiles, waiting for our better home to be revealed when Christ is revealed from heaven. Notice that it hinges on the action of God. It's God that has done this. The emphasis in this text is all on God. We are exiles, but we're exiles because God has done something to pluck us out of the world and save us for his own possession. We who are exiles in this world are the only ones with a lasting home. We're the only ones with a lasting home because we belong to the triune God, as this text makes clear. So, when we're, reading this, when we're reading this letter and we're seeing what these believers are preparing to go through, don't pity the church. Pity the world. Don't pity, don't pity the church and think that they're the most miserable group of people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. They are the only ones who have any true basis for happiness. They are the only ones who have any true basis for hope. Because their hope died and was raised. And he will raise, their, he will raise them up as well. They have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them. And Jesus Christ is coming again. The church is the most victorious, joyful, and beautiful people on the face of the earth because we belong to the triune God. And that's something that no one except the person who's trusted in Jesus Christ can say. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for what a privilege it is to belong to your Son. We thank you that you, by your action and your action alone, have made us one with yourself in Christ, forgiven us all of our sins, and clothed us in the righteousness of your Son. Pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, that they would come to the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Savior of the world bore the wrath of God in his own body on the tree and was raised for their justification. And I pray that they would see that their only hope and their only reconciliation with the triune God is to be found in him. I pray that you would give us a Pray that you give us an increased measure of your spirit today as we continue worshiping you.
pray that you'd apply your word to our hearts. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd uh, stand with me for our closing song, we're going to sing. It's going to be in the hymns of grace. Hymns of Grace, number 393. I'm looking at the end. Yep. Trinity 393. Sorry. 667.
Well, you're uh, welcome to stay with us for lunch. Lunch is going to be immediately after the service, and then we'll meet back here to continue worshiping the Lord together at 145 for our second service.